Thank you all for being here. For those of you who are brand new, thanks for joining us. It is a new series today, and we are always excited to start a new series because we plan and prepare for months in advance, and when it finally gets here, we're super excited about it. So this series is, What is Christianity Really? And uh, it's a great question because Christianity as a global religion is kind of all over the place. It's a very diverse community. We'll talk about that today. But what would it mean if you kind of stripped away some of the stuff that we might pack on to Christianity? What if we were to just see the core of the faith, the foundation of the faith? So that's what we're going to try to get to during this series. I think it's going to be great. I think it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be enlightening. And I think it will actually have a good impact on your life and your family and uh, just the way you relate with God. So I think it's going to be cool. Now, when this question is asked, what is Christianity really? There could be a lot of different kinds of answers. Some might say in a little more academic way, well, it's the, one of the three great monotheistic religions, right? You've got Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the three religions that believe in one God. Some might say, well, there's actually five major religions, and so it's one of the five major religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. It's one of the five greats. Uh, some people might say, well, there's actually about 4,000 organized religions on earth, and it's one of 4,000 religions. It happens to be the biggest, but it's one of 4,000 organized religions. And the only reason I know that is uh, because of, you know, chat GPT. How many organized religions are there? And there are between 4,000 and 16,000 organized religions, and Christianity is, in fact, one of those. Some people might say, well, it's the religious tradition I grew up with, so it's kind of all I know when it comes to religious faith. Some might say, well, it's the only right religion. We are right. Everybody else has it wrong. Some might say that it's a, a dangerous religion. There's a lot of divisions and judgments and kind of tearing maybe communities or families or our country apart. Some might not have very good things to say about the religion of Christianity. Some might say, well, to me, it's not a religion. I don't necessarily consider myself to be a religious follower, but it is, you know, the faith that I relate with God under. It's... It's a personal relationship with me more than it is a religion. So everybody's going to have all kinds of different answers. Um, this is a fairly large community. If we were to line all of you up and to say, okay, well, what is Christianity really to you? We would get hundreds of different answers in this room because we all have a, a different sort of experience in the Christian faith and in, in our religious connection or in our relationship with God. We might have different focuses or emphasis in terms of how we relate with God within the Christian faith. So we get all kinds of different answers. If you line up 100 scholars, we're talking about world religion scholars, and to say, okay, well, what is Christianity really? I think even 100 scholars are gonna come up with 100 different answers. Line up 100 pastors, they're gonna come up with 100 different answers. It's just such a diverse community. So when we ask what is Christianity really, we've gotta sort of peel away all of the stuff that maybe the Christian religion has become in different cultures, different parts of the world over 2,000 years. Because Christianity itself is a little bit messy because it's a little bit diverse. It's not this lockstep, everybody believes the same things and practices their religious you know, life the same way. It's quite different. So as we go through this six-week journey, I'm gonna make uh, four promises to you. Uh, one, it will be a thoughtful journey. So this is not just gonna be about my personal experiences or my personal opinions or my personal theology. This is gonna be something I think is gonna be more thoughtful than that. Uh, it will be biblical since the Christian religion is rooted on the, particularly the 27 books of the New Testament, more broadly, uh, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, so it will be biblical. It will be historical, so this might be a news flash, but Christian expression is not just about right here, right now, Temecula, California. 
2,000 years of rich history, and we're going to mine some of that as we go. And it will be practical. This will not just be some intellectual exercise that means nothing in, in your life or mine. Uh, it will be something very practical in your world, your family, your relationship with God, I promise. And you'll see some of that today. So we're going to start big right now. What is Christianity in the modern day right now? How can we best describe what is Christianity really right here, right now in our modern uh, age? And I'm going to flat out steal a, a metaphor from Max Lucado, who says Christianity is like a giant cruise ship. It's like a giant cruise ship. Now that is, I learned last hour, icon of the seas. It's not yet commissioned. It'll be commissioned next year. And there's about a couple dozen people, apparently from Rancho, going on that ship next year when it's commissioned. So good for them. I hate cruise ships. Never been on a cruise ship and never will be on a cruise ship. It's just not my thing, I promise you. Um, so don't even say, hey, you gotta give it a try. Not gonna happen. I know enough people who have gone on cruise ships. But hey, this isn't my analogy. It's Max Lucado's that I'm just stealing. So. Here's kind of what his thought is. It's a cruise ship that's massive, just filled with wonderful people and, and, and such a variety of people who are on that ship for different reasons. So as I go through the different types of people on the ship, maybe your mind would go to how you're particularly wired on this Christian ship here. So there are those who are below the deck in the engine room. They love the nuts and bolts of Christianity, and that is an actual cruise ship engine. It is huge. And there are people who are into the mechanics of Christianity. They love diving into the doctrines of Christianity. They geek out on Bible studies. They love going to Bible studies. They wanna know the details, right? Maybe that's you. And you're below the deck handling the machinery of, uh, on this, this Christian cruise ship. You might be more wired, hey, I wanna be just in the wind. I want the sun on my face and the wind in my hair. I just wanna feel all the feels. And so when it comes to your relationship with God in the Christian religion, you may be more emotionally driven and you might talk about feeling the presence of God. You might talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. You wanna feel your relationship with God in a powerful way, fantastic. So there are those below dealing with the mechanics. There's those above with the wind in their face. There are those who want the dance floor party, right? They love gathering together. They love worship music. They love singing together. Everybody is welcome. Come on, let's go join no matter who you are and let's have a good time just celebrating God together. There might be some of you who are more excited about the dining room, right? Not just the meal, but hanging out with people. Having a good time, getting to know people. You love getting together maybe in homes. You love to get together in groups and get to know people's lives and interact with people on a relationship basis. That's you. Some of you are wired for being in charge. You like the feeling that you're in charge. You may not be the most fun bunch, but you have a Christian faith because it makes you feel as though you're maybe in power, and so you want your Christian faith and your politics and kind of melded together, and let's strategize to get us in power, right, or take our country back. Uh, you like being in charge. There are those who like to pretty much be alone and relax, right? So you go on a cruise ship and you try to find a corner where there's nobody there, which is not possible on a cruise ship. And uh, you want your book and you, know, you just wanna look at the view and kind of be by yourself just relaxing. And so some of you are more introverted and you just like kind of being alone and having a personal relationship with God. And you don't interact with people as you need to, but basically your sweet spot's sort of by yourself. It's great. Then there are those who wanna rescue people. You've got that life preserver and you think the world is drowning and it's never been worse and you gotta kind of rescue people from you know, the doom to come by converting people into Christianity, and so you're the rescuer, right? You want people to, 
come to faith and, and sort of, you know, be saved in that way. Then there are those who like to work in the infirmary. You've got a heart of compassion and you want to help people that are in need. And so if somebody needs food, you feed them. If somebody needs a home, you try to shelter them. If somebody's feeling lonely, you try to befriend them. You're just always looking out for people, particularly who are in need, and give them a helping hand. So there's all kinds of different people on this wonderful cruise ship called Christianity. So you might want to think about how you're wired. And in your relationship with God and the relationship with the Christian church, um, where do you see yourself on that ship? Uh, bottom line, Christianity is a big, diverse, wonderful mess. And I use that in affectionate terms. Because uh, on the one hand, you can look at the whole kind of scene of Christianity and think, wow, that, there's so many different people with so many different perspectives. And sometimes there's infighting and disagreements and divisions and it just looks like a mess. But if we look at the mess and say, it's actually a diverse group. It's a diverse group of people that each have their different focuses and emphasis, and they love this and love this and don't like that and don't like that. And so, yeah, there's some disagreement the way any family would have disagreements. And yeah, there's differing opinions the way every family would have differing opinions. And sometimes, you know, these two people are fighting over here and they don't seem to be getting along, but that's just the way it goes in a community. That's just the way it goes in this giant, wonderful, diverse mess called Christianity. And so we can kind of maybe even embrace that. So I got to thinking about, you know, Max Lucado's illustration of Christianity being a cruise ship. And I'm thinking, well, what's Rancho Church? And the only thing that came to mind is kind of, well, we all gather together as a diverse group at the pool. Now, I know the pool in a cruise ship is a gigantic, you know, gross communal pool of germs. But we just know that, right? Science. But we're all kind of gathering there and, and we're just hanging out. And Rancho Church is a diverse group from all over the place. So we have people who love geeking out on Bible study and doctrine and word studies. And so every once in a while, hey, get out of the engine room and let's just hang out at the pool together. And you can learn from us and we can learn from you. If you like the wind in your hair, you know, at the top and you just love the feels, hey, join us at the pool. Get together with some people in the mechanic room and get to know them and they get to know you and we can, again, learn from each other, right? If you're like, hey, not in the dining room, hey, you can't eat that much. It's not allowed. You got to get to the pool and you got to, you know, hang out with us, right? So different people from different parts of the Christian world. And what I even love the most is different parts of even the world outside of Christianity coming to Rancho Church and just experiencing what it's like to sort of be together at the pool, get to know each other a little bit, build some relationships. No one of us has all the right answers. Let's learn from each other and grow together and do some good together for people who are in need locally and globally, right? Let's hang out at the pool. Anyway, that came to mind. I, I think it kind of works, but uh, we'll see as we go. That's Christianity right now. A big, diverse, wonderful mess. The nice thing about church history is to know that it's always been a big, diverse, wonderful mess. Christianity has never been this sort of monolithic, every experience is exactly the same in all ages, in all eras, in all corners of the world. It's always been quite diverse. So let's spend a couple of minutes and go back in history. 2,000 years ago, the very first church was 100% Jewish. The very first church was a sect within the Jewish religion. Some people have a hard time getting their heads around that, but Christianity began as a sect within the Jewish religion. Our forefathers and mothers were Jewish by religion, Jewish by nationality, who happened to follow Jesus as the Savior. It was a Jewish sect. Right up until about 70 AD, it became a little diverse before that, but 70 AD, 
the uh, Roman general Titus sacked Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, and the Jewish believers and Jewish people were scattered all over uh, the known world at the time. And, and so Christianity then became nearly exclusively Greek in culture. So it took on just a different cultural tone, more Greek in culture. And then there's this fun little thread, and there's a lot of study around this. Christianity took a little tour in ancient times into Ethiopia, and so there became an African expression of Christianity that's really wonderful. And then over the centuries, it took root in Europe and just kept moving further north into the uh, Germanic tribal regions and then into India and eventually into the Nordic regions. And so the Vikings converted to Christianity, and it's this wonderful sort of Middle Ages story of conversion of people to Christianity in Europe. And then 11th century, 11th century, there's a schism that split Christianity between the East and the West. So there's distinctly Western Christianity culture and distinctly Eastern Christian culture with Greek Orthodoxy and Russian Orthodoxy. And then uh, Christianity moved into the Western Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere through colonialization, right? Not generally speaking a good thing, but as people colonized the world, they brought their faith and a lot of it was the Christian faith. Everywhere there were colonies from the major superpowers, there were mission sites and there was conversion. And a lot of it is terrible history, but it moved forward Christianity globally in that way. Then came America. America became a place where so many denominations, particularly from Europe, settled. And so Christianity became a large part of the founding of early America. It took root even among the slave communities. And so there was a wonderful Christian movement uh, that started in a terrible way, of course, through slavery, but that Christian thread continues now in a vibrant way in the black community. And so right now, due to the missionary movements from the 16th century all the way to the present day, Christianity has filled every corner of the planet and has become the largest religion on earth. That's basically roughly as succinct as I can get it, uh, the diverse history of the Christian church filling every corner of the world and every culture of the earth over the last 2,000 years. It is very diverse, very diverse. In fact, Christianity is very, very diverse. I hate doing the two varies. It's just lazy grammar. It's awful. But I, I just need to emphasize, this Christian faith is incredibly diverse, and some people love it. I've learned to like it. Back in my younger Christian days where I was a little more zealous about this and that, I didn't like the diversity because who's right, who's right, who's wrong, right? That was, the, that was important to me a while back. Now I've realized that it's this incredibly diverse and wonderful community of diverse people from all over, all different cultures. And yes, we have different perspectives and different ways of practicing this incredible faith. It's very, very diverse. Some people love it, some people hate it. I've learned to love it. And Rancho Church is specifically, explicitly embracing diversity and, and enjoying diversity and planning for further diversity, right? We love it. But what holds all this diversity together? What brings all of this wonderful diversity together? It's a very, very simple answer. It is so simple. This is like preschool, Sunday school. It's one word, one name, and that is the name of who? Jesus. It seems overly simplistic, but the richness of the Christian faith and the richness of the Christian diversity is all founded on Jesus, of course. What is Christianity really? It is believing in and following Jesus. It really is that simple. It's in the name, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Savior, Christ, Christian, little Christ. I mean, this was back in 
the early decades of the church, right? There were these Jewish followers of Christ, and, and they started preaching Jesus, and they started specifically, explicitly following Jesus and talking to their friends about it, and they were made fun of. These early Jewish Christians were made fun of. And so people started in a pejorative way saying, oh, you're just a little Jesus. You're a little Christ. You're a Christian. And we see the founding of this label in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Saul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, which is the, verse, the first real diverse community of Christians. Saul and Barnabas stayed there in, uh, with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. The first time people started accusing people of being little Christ was in Antioch, a couple of decades after Jesus rose again from the dead. The foundation of this faith is Christ himself. So to put it this way, Every Christian believes in and follows Jesus Christ, specifically four things, the life, the death, the resurrection, and spirit of Christ. What is Christianity really? Believing in and following the life, death, resurrection, and spirit of Christ. So we're gonna take just a little time and summarize those four things. Let's talk about the life of Christ first. The life of Christ is so important and in Christian doctrine, we realize that the life of Christ does not start at his birth in Nazareth 2,000 years ago, birth in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago in a manger, right? That's not the start of the life of Christ. So doctrinally, the Christian faith believes that Jesus is really the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, the one who eternally proceeds from the life of the Father, became the Christ, became Jesus, became the Son of God at his birth, but he pre-existed in eternity. We see that in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter one, verses one through three. In the beginning, we're talking about the beginning of the beginning, maybe the beginning of time, the beginning of creation itself. The word already existed. The word that became flesh, the word that became Christ, the word that became Jesus, already existed in the beginning. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the, in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. This is Jesus, the eternal Lord, the eternal Lord. Jesus the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God. Jesus the Christ, the fullness of humanity and the fullness of divinity. That is the core doctrine of the Christian faith, this great mystery of Christ, Jesus Christ. Fullness of divinity, fullness of humanity, displaying the fullness of God. We see that in John 14, 9. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, he got in a lot of trouble for saying that because that is essentially blaspheming. If you are saying you are the expression of God, you've seen me, you've seen God, you hear me, you hear God, the works that I do are the works of God himself. Jesus said that many times over the course of his ministry. He was claiming to be the very essence and presence of God himself on earth. Quite a statement. That is Jesus. Then a couple of uh, decades later, you see the Apostle Paul, and he's fine-tuning Christology. He's fine-tuning the doctrine of Christ. And he says this about the life of Christ. Colossians 1.15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. He is the Lord. That's who he is. But what does he do? Jesus is the Lord. He is divinity. He is the creator. But what does he do on earth? In one word, he saves. Jesus is the Savior. 
He's the savior of the world. That's what Christ means. It means savior. It means Messiah. Jesus saves. You might have seen that around. Jesus saves. So what does it mean for Jesus to save? Well, it's not a simple answer. It's a very, very broad, very profound answer. What does it mean for Jesus to save? We can narrow it down maybe in summary format into a few things. Salvation, the salvation of Jesus means mercy to the poor. You see Jesus talk about salvation, you see him work out salvation, and he is being merciful to the poor. He is feeding the hungry, he is healing the sick, he is befriending the outcast, he is forgiving the ones labeled sinner. This is Jesus, he is bringing mercy to the poor. That is God's saving grace through Christ. Jesus is saving the world by bringing justice to the oppressed. Not only did Jesus bring mercy to those who were poor and outcast, but he was fixing the broken, oppressive systems of his day, bringing justice to people. Third, the saving work of Jesus is bringing unconditional love for everyone. And so he talked about forgiving. He talked about reconciling the world to God, bringing everything together to God and bringing everything together to one another. He's bringing the world together in love and bringing the world to God in love. Fourth, the saving work of Christ is making a brand new world. Jesus says, this world isn't going so well. We need a whole new world right here and right now that he called the kingdom of heaven. And he called it the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so that's what he did with his life is he equipped and gathered people together and says, this is a new kingdom, a kingdom of love and grace, mercy and kindness and compassion that's gonna take root on earth, right in front of our eyes. And then the saving work of God is also hope of everlasting life hope of life beyond the grave. And up until that time, there wasn't much thought about life beyond the grave. It was this big, dark mystery. But Jesus says, I'm going to teach and I'm gonna practice life beyond the grave. So it starts with the life of Christ. Believing in and following the life of Christ. So we believe in and follow Jesus, the Christ, the fullness of divinity and the fullness of humanity, the savior of the world. That's what Christianity is really, the life of Christ. But Christianity is also about the death of Christ, the death of Christ. Now, if you were a reasonable, rational human being, the narrative would go something like this, right? This world is dark. This world is, in many ways, evil. This world is corrupt. This world is violent. This world is power-hungry. This world is oppressive, right? It needs to be saved. So here comes Jesus, the light of heaven, the pure goodness of God. He comes to earth, and so you would think the world is in such need the world would fully embrace the light of heaven to fix what's broken. That's what you would think. But that's not at all what happened. In fact, going back to the Gospel of John, chapter one, verse 10, it says that Jesus came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him and even rejected him. So from the very first chapter of the Gospels, we see that Jesus, the pure goodness of heaven, is immediately rejected by the corruptness of this world. And you see this animosity all through the Gospels, all through the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see the animosity, the world continuing to stand against Jesus, the world continuing to stand against the light of heaven, against the pure goodness of God. And we see that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is Luke chapter four. As soon as Jesus says, hey, I am here, and I am the savior of the world, and I'm gonna build a movement that fixes what's broken, he's immediately rejected in his own hometown, Luke 4, 28. The people mobbed Jesus and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff. 
That's when Jesus says, hello, world, in his own hometown. They drive him outside of the city and want to kill him by pushing him off a cliff. That's his very first message in his own hometown. The world has always stood against Jesus. The world has stood against the pure goodness of God. And then we see this animosity all the way to the very end of his ministry. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus is wrapping things up. He's in Jerusalem, and he knows this oppression against him is gonna end in his death. And here's what happens in Luke 22. The leading priests and teachers of the religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. So here we have this very complex scene at the very end of Jesus' ministry. The people in power have always hated Jesus. The people in religious power hated Jesus. People in political power hated Jesus. They wanna keep oppressing people and keep manipulating people to keep their wealth, to keep their power. Yet Jesus is on the streets and he's with the poor and he's feeding and he's healing and he's building this incredible movement of tens of thousands of people who believe he's the savior of the world. And so he's very popular among the poor and the sick and the lonely and the sinner. He's very unpopular with the politically and religiously powerful. They want him dead, yet he's popular on the streets. So what do they do? They create this incredible conspiracy and they start spreading rumors that Jesus is committing both religious and political crimes. So they spread rumors that say Jesus is actually blaspheming against the name of God and people start to believe it. Just consider that early social media, right, gossip. Did you hear Jesus? Did you hear this? Did you hear this? And people start whispering about Jesus. Might he have blasphemed the name of God and so he's committing these religious crimes 2,000 years ago. Then people start spreading other rumors, you know, early social media. Did you hear Jesus is against the Roman emperor and against the Roman governor and he's actually committing treason against the Roman empire? This is, this is a buzz, 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 and people start to kind of believe this groundswell. And he was betrayed by one of his own disciples for the price of 30 pieces of silver. He's arrested, he has tried six times overnight. The crowd starts to kind of build early in that morning that yes, we need to stand against Jesus, he's a blasphemer, and he's, 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 he committed treason, and he must be put to death. So Jesus is murdered. And he's murdered in the most horrific way, in the most violent way, Roman crucifixion, horrifically violent. So he was arrested unjustly and tried unjustly and tortured unjustly, murdered unjustly on a Roman cross. Torturous and cruel Roman cross. And so the cross is the center symbol of Christianity. And why is the cross the center of Christianity. I mean, we've got like a half a dozen around here. Our original one is in the West Campus, and we've got another one on this campus, and our second one, then we've got a custom one out there. We've got crosses everywhere. A lot of us are wearing crosses as jewelry. Why is the cross the symbol of Christianity? Because the cross symbolizes two things, uniquely true. One is that this world is incredibly corrupt. The political powers and religious powers of this world are incredibly corrupt and they always stand against the pure goodness of God. And so the cross is the symbol of killing the pure goodness of God because the, the world is that broken. But the cross is also equally the symbol of how loving God is because the creator of the world did not have to die in that way. Jesus told the soldiers, I could bring down hellfire upon you all. And he didn't and he submitted himself 
to be arrested, to be tried, to be tortured, and to be killed because Jesus loved us till the end. Jesus showed off the depth of God's love, the breadth of God's love for us all. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, the love of God is unconditional and the love of God will not be stopped. As the word of God says, he loved till the very end. He loved till his very last breath. He loved the people who were around him. He loved the thief on the cross as he was being crucified. He loved the actual people crucifying him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He loved till his last breath. So the cross is the symbol of how broken this world is, but the cross is a symbol of how loving God is. And so the cross, rightfully so, is the, is the symbol of Christianity itself. So we remember the death of Jesus, the light of the world, loving this broken world to the very end. So following Jesus and believing in Jesus is about the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and finally it's about the resurrection of Christ. It is about the resurrection of Christ. So get the narrative here, right? It's this dramatic narrative of the gospel. The world is remarkably broken. God sends the light of heaven itself, the pure goodness of God, to fix this broken world, to save this broken world. But this broken world and the sin of the world crushes Jesus to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the narrative, as you read the gospels, has you feeling very broken and very depressed. The light of the world crushed by the evil of the world and put to death, and so all hope is lost, right? Except on the third day, Jesus rises from the dead. That is the great victory of the Christian message. That in the face of evil, goodness rises, right? In the face of suffering, glory rises. In the face of death itself, life rises. That's the beautiful message of the Christian faith. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, so political corruption doesn't have the last word. Religious corruption does not have the last word. Self-serving and oppressive powers do not have the last word. Violence does not have the last word. Suffering does not have the last word. Even death itself does not have the last word because there's resurrection. And this resurrection isn't just about the resurrection of Jesus. It's about the resurrection of all of us, of this world. Life, death, and resurrection is the narrative we're all walking. It wasn't just for Jesus 2,000 years ago. Right now, this world is alive, and right now this world is in many ways dead, but God is resurrecting this entire world to a better future, the kingdom of heaven. It's the story of all of us. Life, death, and resurrection is also our story, our individual story. We're alive, we will die, but we will rise again. So there's hope even beyond the grave. That is an incredible truth of Christianity. It's the narrative that from hopelessness there will be hope, from suffering there will be glory, from death, there will be life. I finally saw Barbie two days ago. I was the last person on earth, I think, to see Barbie. And of course, she's having her Barbie dance moment and everything is perfect, and then it just all stops. And she says, do you guys ever think about dying? And then the whole, you talk about a buzzkill, the entire party is buzzkill, right? And it's kind of funny, but it goes through a whole very, you know, profound narrative about, you know, being human and, you know, the story. I just found out about it two days ago. Last one on earth. But it's a really interesting journey, right, to think about what it means to be human, but to look at it through the lens of resurrection, that yes, there's suffering here, but there will be glory ahead, and some of us will experience maybe a piece of that here. We will all experience that in eternity. We will all experience death, but there is life for us all in eternity because of what Jesus did for us. Not just quoting Barbie, how about the Bible? 1 Corinthians 15, and if our hope in Christ is only for this life, 
we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Isn't that great? Jesus is the first to rise from the dead, but we all will join him. That's the hope of resurrection. What an incredible truth. So we put our hope of new and eternal life in the resurrection of Jesus. So we're gonna close with, with two things. We're gonna take communion together, and if you don't have your communion cup, uh, wave your arms frantically and we will get you a communion cup. There's the bread on one side and there's the juice on the other side. Right before the death of Jesus and days before his resurrection, he was celebrating a meal with his disciples. He got his core disciples together and he shared the Passover meal that included bread. So take the bread, you can break it if you like, and Jesus says, this is a symbol of my body, which is broken for you. Jesus says, as often as you share this meal together, as often as you share this communion together with each other, take this bread to remind you of, yes, how broken the world is that put the Son of God to death, but also how loving God is, that Jesus Christ would give his life to show his unconditional and forgiving love to a broken world. So take this and eat this in remembrance of Christ. Jesus takes the wine of the Passover meal and he says, let this wine symbolize my shed blood. My body will be broken, but my blood will be shed because this world is a broken place. It will put to death even the pure goodness of God. But also let it remind you of my love for you, that I love this world to the very end, to my last breath, and I love you to the very end. And as we take this in, we're taking in the life of Christ, we're taking in the death of Christ, but also knowing that there is resurrection beyond the suffering and beyond hopelessness and even beyond the grave. So take this in remembrance of Christ. We're gonna pray together and, and have one final song that just wraps all this up beautifully. God, we thank you for this big, beautiful mess that is Christianity. As for 2,000 years, in every corner of this world and in every culture, communities have been gathering and have been honoring you through music, studying the Bible, and taking communion together, following this very simple but beautiful story that Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior, the fullness of divinity and the fullness of humanity came to earth 2,000 years ago and showed us the fullness of who you are. And he lived such a beautiful life of serving people, particularly those who are poor and sick and broken and outcast and sinners, loving them to the very end, even sacrificing his own life, his body broken and his blood shed because he was so committed to loving everyone everywhere. The darkness of this world, the sin and brokenness of this world crushed. The very light of heaven, the pure goodness of God, the unconditional love of heaven. But God, thank you that on the third day, he rose from the dead, conquering oppression, conquering suffering, conquering the brokenness of this world and conquering death itself. And so as Christians, we believe in and follow Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. And now we live in unity by the spirit of the resurrected Christ. In his name we pray, amen.
We're gonna close in a final song, and uh, Delaney, you are the perfect person and the perfect voice to sing this song. It's a very popular song. We probably all know it from Lauren Daigle called You Say. Yeah, and it's so popular here on every radio station, right? Yes. And I think that's because even if you're not Christian, you can still relate to it. We all feel at some point in our life where we don't belong. Yeah. And we just feel these labels that either we put on ourselves or other people put on us. But yeah. then it becomes so freeing to feel like you can just say, God says to you that you are strong when you feel weak and you are loved when you don't feel anything at all. That's so powerful. It is. So just uh, sit and enjoy the song and uh, let it soak in. Let the words of the song and the truth of the song soak in. That we believe in and follow Jesus who says things to us by his life, by his death, by his resurrection. I love you. You're a child of God. And enjoy. Come on, church. Let's sing this together. I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough Every single lie that tells me I will never measure
Every failure, God, and you'll have every victory.